Father, we thank you for the gospel that it is the wall tearing down agent that you have given to us, that it knows no borders, it knows no boundaries, it is not a respecter of persons, it is not a respecter of social economic classes, it's not a respecter of color, of skin, but the blood of Jesus and the cross and the foot of the cross is level ground for all. And Father, we thank you for that tonight. We ask that as we still press closer and closer and closer into the scandalous sin that brought us freedom and redemption, as we look at your plan for the ages, the tapestry, the masterpiece of redemption that you yourself, the masterful hand of God, painted for us to bring us enemies of God closer back to reconciled into relationship with a holy and just and righteous God. Father, may we see more and more people come to grips with the gospel. May we see more and more lives transformed by the truth. We recognize that no mere man, no eloquence of speech or presentation can make the gospel change and grip a heart that that is only the Spirit of God. So God, we ask that the Spirit of God would find its place in this room tonight to convict the world of sin, to convict the world of just of, <laughs> of all the things that are wrong, to convict the world of judgment, and to show that there is none righteous, no, not one. But there is one that can make one righteous. There is one that is just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Him. His name is Jesus, the Savior, the heart mender, the restorer of all that is broken, Jehovah Rapha, the healer, the almighty God. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for doing that. Um, I know that might have weirded some of you out, but I've just been kind of gripped by those things this week. Um, man, I'm, I'm really kind of hesitant tonight with what we're talking about. Y'all go ahead and come on in and have a seat. Stay for a while. Light a candle on your way in, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about what God's doing in our midst. Uh, man, again, just freedom is happening in the hearts of people. Um, people are coming to grips with the fact that the gospel is so much more than just going through the motions or checking off a checklist or being associated with white people that dress a certain way, but the gospel calls us to wrap our lives around who Jesus is and then to be used to be changed and to be an agent of change in our world around us. And people are being gripped with that. The Lord is exposing sin. The Lord is showing you cannot do this on your own, but I've made a way through Jesus, the wrath absorber. And I am so pumped at what God is doing in the hearts of men and women. Um, if you haven't checked out some of the stories online, we just have like three or four stories online. We're starting to get those out. But I want to let you know that I had the opportunity to lead a person to the Lord who is not in our midst, who has not been around us at all, but saw a story of the gospel lived out in the life of someone within our group and the gospel, like a Mack truck, being lived out through this individual, pierced the heart 
of this other person who is in a horrible place, but they have an internet connection, and God has saved them, moved them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun through one of your testimonies. And that's the gospel, that's what we're about, and that's what you all are to be about, is as your stories get out, that's what God uses. I can stand up here and talk till I'm blue in the face and show you all kinds of scripture, but the real meat of the message is a life that is transformed. A life that gets the truth, is changed by the truth, and the truth just pours out of them as they live their life. And I'm so thankful for those of you that are getting that, that it's changing you, and that you are moving. You are moving heaven and earth with the way that you're living your life in this community. And praise be to God for doing that in the midst of some crazy stuff. God is ransoming hearts even today. Um, as we continue to press into the gospel tonight, we're elevating and we are honing in on some hard stuff within the gospel. We've done the really pretty pictures of how God's painted some pictures in the Old Testament. We've seen Jesus, how he's gone, um, how he's healed people, how he's changed people. But tonight is when we start pressing into those, oh, those uncomfortable, those wow, this is not what the, the picture that's painted, this is not what people say Jesus is about. Uh, an effeminate gospel, I guess, is the word that I'm looking for. Where we try to pretty up the gospel, we try to paint Jesus as, you know, this upper, white, middle class, whatever, person, good teacher, good person, but not Savior and not King. We've seen Jesus as King. We've seen that He's the Son of David. We've seen that He is the Chosen One. Well, tonight we're moving past that. We're moving past the testimonies that we saw last week that Jesus is the Son of God. He said that about Himself. We're moving past the testimony of the disciples. Who do you say that I am? You are the Son you are the Messiah, Son of the living God. I believe. We're moving past Jesus' works, all this crazy stuff that He did to show He was the Son of God, and we're moving past the fact, the gripping, sobering fact that the sinless Son of God was the one that took on my pain and my shame and my grief and my sorrows. He bore those so that I could have freedom. We're moving past all that. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn them in them to Mark, Mark chapter 3. If you don't realize this, we're being invited into a story. Um, stories resonate with us, and sometimes we look at the gospel, we look at the Word of God as just these pages, as just red letters, as just this stuff on page, but this is a story. These events actually took place. They were put together by the sovereign hand of God, and we have four eyewitness testimonies of what took place in the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all testify about His teaching, Jesus' signs, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' wonders that He did in order to show that He was the Son of God. And guess what happened? Same thing that would happen today. Jesus shows all these things, and guess what? People paid attention. He had tons of followers. He had those people that just followed Him because of what He could do for them. He had those people that were ripe, as we've been talking about on Sunday. 
And he had those people that weren't so ripe. He had those people that were scared. He had those people within the framework of society that were freaked out by what he was doing. And yet all of this was ordained in part of history's most spectacular sin. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 1 with me, please. He, Jesus, entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. They, the Pharisees, were watching him. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that, the purpose, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he, Jesus, said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them, the scribes, the Pharisees, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. All right, from this situation, you all talk to me a little bit. What do you see about Jesus here? What are some things that the text says about Jesus as you look at this? Okay, he engaged them in conversation. Who's the them here? Let's get our main characters here. The Pharisees, just the Pharisees. There's all kinds of other people. There's the Pharisees, and then kind of, it's all centers around who? Jesus and, who's this other guy? The guy with the withered hand, right? So we have the Pharisees, the guy with the withered hand, and Jesus, okay? Uh, let's, let's pick apart the, the Pharisees. What do you see about the Pharisees here? What are they trying to do? What's their motivation? They want to catch Jesus breaking the law. They want to what? Discredit Him? Destroy Him? What's verse 2 say? They want to accuse Him. And what's the issue that they might accuse Him with? What's kind of this, the underlying situation? Are we going to catch Him? Or are we not going to catch Him? Are we going to catch Him? Working on the Sabbath. And Jesus knows this. Let's go to what we see about Jesus. What do you see about God in flesh, Jesus, right here? He engages them in conversation, somebody said earlier. He's in the synagogue. He's in their place of teaching. Anything else? I love that. He knows what they're thinking, and Jesus is not a Republican politician that just goes for what people might do or what they might not do, what's he do here? He knows what they're trying to get at. And does that make him shy away? What's he do? Does he get angry? He's grieved. He's grieved over what? 
their motive, their hardness of heart. Now this is completely different than the money changer situation where Jesus gets angry and in a rage, a righteous anger, but Jesus still confronts. What's the question Jesus asks? Okay. What, what's the problem here? What day is it? It's a Sabbath day. Okay, we'll, talk, we'll unpack that in a second. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Now, we don't know Jewish culture and we don't know the whole thing, but should it be lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Yes? Hey, it's the Sabbath. Don't do good today. It, do you see kind of Jesus' sarcasm here? What else does he say? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to save life or to kill? Meanwhile, bro with the withered hand is sitting there still with the withered hand. This whole kind of UFC fight, cage fight getting ready to go down between Jesus and the Pharisees and this guy's with the withered hand. And what's he want? Bro just wants his withered hand to not be withered anymore. And so what's Jesus say to the man with the withered hand? Hey, get over here, first of all, and then stretch out your hand. Now, if your hand is withered, just I know none of you have a withered hand in here, but if your hand is withered, is it possible to stretch out the withered hand? No. Hey, stretch out the withered hand. And what's the guy do? Stretches out the withered hand. His hand was restored, verse 6 says, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him. Jesus, Savior of the world, God incarnate, was not afraid of controversy, was not afraid of people coming against him, was not afraid of the religious system of the day, he knew what he was to do, and he didn't care. Let me unpack a little bit of this for you. Pharisees, you probably already know this, but for those of you that don't, the Pharisees were Jews who were, their whole intent in life was to keep God's law. That's all they wanted to do, because in keeping the law, you proved that you were righteous. It was very external, very on the outside. They had created regulations to help them not break God's laws. Okay, so let's say that right here is God's law. For example, the Sabbath. Remember the, oops, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What they would do is they would put all these boundaries around that law. They would put all these man-made laws so that you would never even get close to Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. They would make all these man-made rituals so you never even got close to breaking that law. So, for example, they would say, hey, if you're going to go for a walk on the Sabbath, you better only walk blank amount of miles or kilometers or whatever system they used back then. You better only go this far because if you go a step over that distance, it's considered work. You're breaking the Sabbath and you're worthy of death. 
Uh, let me give you another example. Not just walking, but let's say you had a little backpack on your way to school. And you were, oh my gosh, going to school on Sabbath day, and you had that weight in your backpack, or you were on your way to the synagogue, that's probably better, you were on your way to the synagogue to meet with all the old men to talk about the synagogue type stuff, and you said, hey, why carry all these scrolls in my hand, I'm going to put them in my backpack, you put them in your little backpack, and if it was too heavy, you were working, so you would be stoned you would die. Needless to say, that's dumb. It's stupid. You're putting all your faith in rituals. You're putting all your faith in your own ability to keep the law. And that's retarded. No other word besides that. Because you can't keep the law. You cannot do it. James says that if you break the law... One instance of breaking the law. What are you? You're guilty of it all. It's kind of like the beat him upside the head Jesus technique of some people today. Well, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. Well, then you're an adulterer because you're guilty of the whole law. But in reality, that's the case. That's the truth. You're guilty of it all. They didn't get the whole fact there is none righteous, no, not one. Here, in this instance, if there was a doctor, if there was a medicine person, and they healed someone on the Sabbath, it was considered work, and they were to be stoned and put to death. Meanwhile, bro with the withered hand is still there, and all he wants is to be healed and restored. So we begin to see this conspiracy against Jesus. The Herodians in this context, if you go back to verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately they got it, they caught him. They didn't catch him like sleeping with somebody. They didn't catch Jesus doing these crazy sinful things. They caught Jesus healing someone. They go out, they conspire against him with the Herodians. The Herodians were a political party that said, yeah, we're okay with the Roman rule. If you know anything about this time period, it was a crazy, uh, crazy, no foundation, political turmoil, crazy situation. You had the Romans who were occupying Palestine, occupying this area, their rules, their government. You had to pay taxes to Rome. They had their people in there to kind of beef you up and be angry at you and to intimidate you. Then you had the religious system of the Jews that had their own rules, their own standards, that tried to beef you up and be angry at you if you broke their system of rules. Then you also had some followers of Ishmael, some followers of some other religions, all mixed into this one pot. And the Herodians, who were on the team of the Romans, Jews that were on the team of the Romans, betrayers that were on the team of the Romans are now conspiring against Jesus. Now, we're going to jump to the book of John. We were in John last week, John chapter 10. I am the shepherd, the sheep hear my voice, they are known by me, and they follow me, and nobody can snatch them out of my hand. We talked about how that applies to us a little bit. Well, then you get to chapter 11, and chapter 11 is a cool story, but we don't have time to go into it. But that's the whole Jesus 
not only can heal withered hand man, not only can say to this guy, get up off your pallet and walk, but he can say, Lazarus, who's been dead, come forth. Jesus goes from the realm of, yeah, he can forgive, he can do all this stuff to people, cast out demons, to Jesus is the resurrection, Jesus is speaking, and someone who is decaying in order that the glory of God may be shown gets up out of the grave, and Jesus has his disciples go up and take off the bandages, and Lazarus is alive. That happens in chapter 11. Then we get to chapter 12. That's where we're going to hang out. So Jesus has just done this crazy thing. Six days before the Passover, one of the annual Jewish feasts, Jesus comes to this town called Bethany. Bethany is not very far from Jerusalem. There, Jesus was anointed by a woman named Mary. You've probably skimmed through this. You probably know this story. But I want you to see the significance of the gospel and what's getting ready to happen. Jesus has these people trying to get him. Imagine what they said when he healed someone and they rose from the dead. Because you're not allowed to go near dead people. Look at verse 3 of John chapter 12 with me. Verse 3. I want you to pay attention to two characters. A girl Mary and somebody else who's going to enter in the scene. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. I don't know what nard is, but they need to change the name maybe. (laughs) Evidently this perfume was pretty great, although the name, the branding of it was not that great. And they anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped, or she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her... What? Now this isn't just putting stuff on Jesus like, hey, I'm going to put this on you. Woman is down on her face before Jesus, nasty feet, sandals, dusty environment, She gets down on her face before Jesus, anoints Jesus' feet with this costly perfume, and then wipes the dirt with her hair, some other translations say, with her tears as well. Wow. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I don't know who all was around. I don't know if a lot of people saw this, if this was a big instance, but look at what verse 4 says. But Judas Iscariot. If you know anything about Judas, Judas was the one person that you would look at and you'd say, he qualifies to be a disciple. He comes from a good family. They've got some cash. He could be a financier of the ministry and the mission. This guy looks good. Look at what it says about him. Versus the other guys that you'd be like, oh, they missed the boat. He's an angry fisherman. He's a tax collector. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to what? Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray him. You got these guys on the outside that are trying to get him. Yeah, that's understandable. They're not on his team. But Judas who is one of the twelve, is now looking for an opportunity to betray him. 
Yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus is also man in this situation. Can you imagine? Not just being, not just having somebody trying to get you and catch you and trip you up all the time, but somebody within your close circle of friends. Somebody who you have poured yourself into. Somebody who has lived with you, eaten with you, who you've taught, who has seen all these miracles, who has heard all the teaching of the kingdom of God. This guy, and we already know Jesus knows everything because we've seen him remember or bring to light things that people are thinking. Jesus is about to be betrayed. Verse 5, Judas says, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Seems like a pure motive. But we get more of the story, verse 6. Now he, Judas, said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he's the guy in charge of the cash, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Do you remember our friend, the tax collector, Matthew? Everybody was afraid, oh, he's going to be the one that takes all the money. Judas, the one who comes from the good family, is the one that's taken all the money. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as a result, now remember, Mary's here, she's just on this, the perfume is still, the, the scent of the perfume and this act of pure grace, an act of love, is still resonating with the people who are seeing this. And you've got flip contrast Judas saying, why don't we give all this to the poor? Why don't we sell this? Why has this lady just thrown this perfume out? Uh, meanwhile, on the inside of his heart, oh, that says so much about complainers. But this is the gospel. Verse 7, Therefore Jesus said, Leave or let her alone. Why? What was the purpose of this woman Mary who had been forgiven much, other scriptures say? Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. She began the process. She began the anointing process of Jesus walking to the cross. Save this for my burial. There's no parentheses that says, and they were astounded at what Jesus had just said. I don't know if they got this. I don't think that they did because of some other things that are said later. But can you imagine? Jesus, his entire life, is on this road to the cross. And this woman, Mary, has this experience with the Savior where she washes His feet with her tears and with the perfume. Jesus chose 12 disciples. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but we need to remember this. Jesus chose 12 disciples as they were at the beginning of His ministry. They were always with Him, learning and witnessing the miracles and work His Father was doing through Him. John 6, 64, you can jot that down. But John 6.64 says that Jesus knew from the beginning this was not a surprise that Jesus was going to betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was going to do this. Okay? Flash forward a little bit. A couple verses. Five days. The countdown begins. Five days before the Passover. 
Remember the Passover? Remember when we looked at that in Exodus? The night when all the lambs would be slaughtered and the blood spread on the doorposts? You are to remember and commemorate this. Five days before the Passover, Jesus came from Bethany to Jerusalem. What happened was the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy. You can write this down to Zechariah 9.9. Let me read John 12, verse 12 to you. On the next day, Jesus is in getting ready to go to Jerusalem. A crowd who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now remember, this is like attractional ministry 101 here. Jesus had raised someone from the dead in Bethany. There's all this buzz. There's no tweets back then or Facebook statuses. This is like, did this guy just do this? And all these people are gathering, and there's tons of people in Jerusalem because this feast is about to take place. They took the branches of the palm trees, they went out to meet him, and they began to shout, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but you've seen these like cheesy little dramas where this is just so borderline juvenile, where these people are waving these branches and stuff. I don't know what this looked like, but there was excitement. There was people, there was an anticipation about what was getting ready to happen, and people were screaming out, Hosanna, God save us. Consider the significance. Passover is in five days. Before Jesus is the crowd's favorite. He's the chosen one. He's the king. Awesome. Right on. Verse 14, Jesus, finding a young donkey, unless you have the King James, sat on it as it is written. Everything Jesus did was a fulfillment of, of prophecy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. This is that Zechariah 9.9 passage. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Verse 16, they thought the king was going to usher in the kingdom where freedom from oppression, freedom from the Romans was going to happen, liberation, and they set up this earthly kingdom. They didn't understand that the kingdom of God is more than that. It's repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 16, these things his disciples, I love this, these things his disciples did not understand. You want to ride a what? A donkey. Okay. Other places in Scripture, they actually had to go and find the donkey because it's the middle of the feast and all the good donkeys are being used. These things, his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, after he's gone, after uh, he's ascended, after the glorious resurrection, then they remembered. Probably had something to do with the Holy Spirit reminding them of things they've seen. Then they remembered that these things were written of him, Jesus, They got that Jesus was in the Old Testament and that they had done these things to him. Did the disciples get it? At this point in time when Jesus is riding around on the donkey and people are throwing palm branches singing Hosanna. Did they get it? Can you imagine what they were thinking? Like, what's happening here? What's going on? Jump to verse 23. The story of Lazarus is getting out. It's a big deal. Not only do you have Jews coming to see Jesus, but some Greeks are coming to see Jesus. Jews and Greeks don't typically hang out together. They don't have a lot in common. They don't really like each other. 
but that's pretty significant. You get to verse 23, there's some Greeks that are brought to Jesus, and Jesus answers them and says, verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. God's timetable, the hour has come. Verse 24, truly, truly, sure enough, sure enough, get the point, what I'm about to say is very important to you. I say to you, the Greeks and some people hanging around Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's the picture Jesus is given here? Agricultural. What's he talking about? Any farmers? No. Tell us about it. Anybody like apples? You like apples? You like getting them from Walmart? Wherever you go, sprouts, whatever you call it. Where do you get apples from? What's kind of the process, though, involved in that? You get it from the lady who picked them. Where she pick them from? The tree. Where did the tree come from? Well, from a seed that was located where? In an old school apple that someone ate and said, whom I want to plant this apple because I want an apple tree. There were several years involved in that. Put the seed in the ground. Yeah, it's dead. But if it's in the ground, if it's cultivated, what happens? It bears fruit. Think of what Jesus is saying here. The disciples aren't getting it. Verse 27, now my soul, talking about Jesus, consider the humanity of Jesus in this. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. See the wrestling that's happening here. I don't know the time phrase that happened. I don't know if there's this pause or I don't know what's going on here, but Jesus then continues, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. For what purpose? What's he just told us about? Unless it falls into the ground and dies, there'll be no fruit. I've come for this purpose. What's the purpose? To die. My hour has come. Who killed Jesus? That's not the issue. God is the one who killed Jesus at the hands of sinners. Sinners are the ones that killed Jesus. The hour has come. Look at what he says, verse 28. Father, I can't imagine the turmoil that's going on here. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world, what's his name? The enemy, the devil, the dragon, the serpent of old. The ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, Jesus speaking, 
and I, if I am lifted from the earth, will do what? Draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate what kind of death by which he was to die. What kind of death is he going to die? Well, if he's lifted up, what's going to happen? Consider the story of the wheat, unless it dies and goes into the ground. And then Jesus says, unless I be lifted up, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Father, if it's possible, but no. This is the purpose, this is the point of why I came. Remember our, our, our story where this all started? Did I go too far? Remember our story where this started, Genesis 3? Genesis 3, 14 and 15, you don't have to go there if you don't want to. Which the Lord first gives the promise that the Lord gave in the Garden of Eden of the promised one in the midst of sin, suffering, judgment because of sin. The promised one, the Messiah, God spoke this just after man had first sinned. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you... Remember the serpent, the one who is in the world now but will be cast out? Because you have done this, cursed are you, serpent, more than all the cattle and more than the beasts of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, hatred, strife, bitterness between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Jesus, he, Jesus, shall bruise you, death blow, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The ruler of the world's cast out. When I am lifted up, the heel comes down on the serpent. This is really interesting. See if I'll read this to you so you don't bother yourself. When Jesus was crucified... They nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. Then, unless I be lifted up and draw all men to myself, they lifted him up on the cross and put it into the ground. Crucifixion is the only death that bruises the heel in this way. This occurs, as we'll detail much more in detail later, when that person repeatedly digs the heel into the back of the cross with the piercing, with the nail in the heel in order to lift up to breathe. As the person lifts up to breathe because of the lungs collapse, the heel is broken even more and bruised even more. The flesh, the blood is lifted up even more, torn in two even more. It repeatedly digs in his heel into the cross in order to lift his body up so that he can exhale. If he doesn't exhale, then the carbon dioxide stays in his lungs. During the Passover meal, after this, Jesus shared with his disciples... Oops, hold on. During the Passover meal, Jesus shared with his disciples, he washed their feet and told them that one of them would betray him. The story continues. It's getting, the intensity is growing. The pictures of the cross 
from the Old Testament are suddenly coming to light for the disciples. They're huddled in this upper room in order to celebrate this feast where the lamb is going to die and they're going to share they're going to share the meat of the blood of the lamb. They're going to pass this cup and you know the interaction that Jesus has with his disciples on the night when all of the lambs would be slaughtered. If you could do me a favor and turn the lights out and turn the volume up, we'll watch this very quickly. This scandalous sin, this masterpiece that God is showing, that God is painting, now returns to an ugly, ugly, scandalous thing. Had the scandal, had the betrayal, had all these things that we've become so accustomed and sensitive to and they don't grip us, that this is what had to happen in order to take the wrath of God so that I could be free, so that I could be liberated, so that I could be a child of God. We wear it around our neck. We paint it in our kitchens or in our houses as a decoration and yet it was an instrument of torture, it was an instrument of death, it was an instrument of shame. And yet God in His sovereignty weaved life and hope and peace out of an instrument of shame. John chapter 13, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in his spirit. Again, the humanity of Jesus and testified saying, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. He, John, verse 25, sorry, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? This is family time, okay? This isn't like... Uh, this isn't all the crowds, this isn't all the followers, this is family time. You might have had family time at your house where, okay, no Sally kid come over to spend the night tonight because we have to have this conversation. This is family time with Jesus. They're about to commemorate this amazing thing and Jesus is going to be shifting their attention forward to what's about to happen on the cross. This is the last time that they're together. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Can you imagine the other disciples, what they think? They lean in, one of them, the, uh, can't talk, the beloved John, the author of the book also, leans in to Jesus and says, who is it? Jesus then answered, verse 26, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he, the Son of God, took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, what happens? Bro, I don't know what this looks like. Satan then enters into him. That UFC fighting match that we were talking about earlier, it's finding its climax, and now in this corner is the sinless Son of God who knew no sin. And Judas, the one who was with Jesus, 
If you're confused by this, you need to do a character study of Judas in the book of John. It wasn't that he followed Jesus and then he walked away. Judas, whose sole intent of being with Jesus was what was about to happen to betray him. Satan enters in him and Jesus says to him, Jesus who could have took his head off, Jesus who could have stabbed him, Jesus who could have retaliated, Jesus says to him, what? With brokenness, with a grieved spirit, grieved heart, broken heart, says to Judas, what you do, do quickly. Luke chapter 22. Um, If one of y'all could go out there, this is like big time, time stuff right here. If you could go just quiet the natives out there, that would be great. Luke 22, verse 1. Same situation. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests, remember those guys that were trying to get Jesus? They were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Spineless cowards. Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he, Judas, went away and discussed with the chief priests. Remember, he was looking for this opportunity discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. Judas knows that Jesus knows, and he still does it. Verse 5, they, the chief priests and scribes, they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd because he doesn't want to be the one shown that he's the betrayer. Verse 7, Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Think about it. The resurrection of Lazarus, the anointing of Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, a couple days before, and now the lamb is about to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. Immediately after the Passover meal, what happened? Jesus went from the upper room to a location. What was the location? The Garden of Gethsemane with His disciples. Do you remember what they were going to do? To pray. I'll read this to you. Don't turn there. You can write it down and look at it later. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there, this is God in flesh, and pray. God in flesh who's just been betrayed. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Again, the humanity of Jesus. Then he said to them, My soul is greatly grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He wants to be comforted by his friends. And he went a little while beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Again, I don't know the pause here. I don't know if it was immediate. But Jesus emphatically, yet not as I will, but as you will. His hour had come. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And we all know it was only possible through Jesus drinking this cup. And he left them again, verse 44, saying, he went away to pray a third time, saying the same thing once more. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? The very friends he brought with him to console him, he's got all this conflict without, one of his own is betraying him, the ones who are supposed to be walking with him along this path of hardness, they've fallen asleep. Behold, Jesus says, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners right now. It's the instance that the Greek says, right now he's being betrayed. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one, Judas, who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up and accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders. Now he who is betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, hail, rabbi teacher and kissed him and Jesus said to him friend do what you have come for then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him you see we see Jesus as resurrected king we see it's okay for us Hosanna Hosanna but the real meat of the message of how transformation can take place in our hearts is this week Notice, this story started in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. More time is devoted to this one week in Jesus' life than the rest of the instances. We saw that the Jews were plotting to kill Him. Mary anointed Him for burial. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of coming into Jerusalem on a cult. His hour had come to be crucified. Judas, one of His own, betrayed Him. Jesus did not want to face suffering, death, and separation from His Father. But He submitted to His Father's will. Jesus had lived the perfect sinless life on earth. He wasn't deserving of death. Now He was about to make the ultimate sacrifice, the voluntary laying down of His life, that we, sinners, might be reconciled and have peace with God. Not through a peaceful treaty that's signed in a little car or in the halls of Congress, but a death died. Consider the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, Jesus, Consider once again, afresh anew, maybe even for the first time, what our sin did to our Savior. What our sin did to the Lamb of God, who knew no shame, who did not open His mouth, willingly went so that we could have peace with God. These next few weeks are vitally important for us as we consider the scandalous sin of the cross, 
the greatest sin in history that's brought forth the greatest liberation and freedom. It is imperative not only for you to be here, but as we celebrate these things, for others to be here, as we celebrate these things and as we press into what happened on the cross, it's not by chance that it's also Easter. You know, the time where we dress up and come to church and celebrate the resurrection, but we've got to get how deep the cost was, how great the cost was. And that's what I've been praying for. That's what I've been broken over, that not only us, but more and more and more would get the seriousness of the gospel that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, some of us in this room may have experienced the betrayal Some of us might feel like people are just trying to get us at all times, coming around us, trying to trip us up. Some of us may have even been betrayed by friends. But Father, help us to selfishly get our eyes off of us and to center it on the cross and what happened on the cross in order to bring us freedom. Father, if if there's those in this room that have just casually said, yes, Jesus is my Savior, without realizing the depth of love, the depth of grace, the depth of mercy that was poured out in the, on the cross that was ripped into the flesh of Him who knew no sin. Father, I ask that You would, through the Holy Spirit, grip their hearts in a chokehold of grace. That this wouldn't be an emotional thing where we see the passion of the Christ and we cry and then that's it. But Father, that this would grip us to the core of our being. That this, the love of God, would compel us. Would motivate us. Would control us. Father, allow us to see how disgusting sin is because of what it did to our Savior. But Father, we also thank you for what you've done. That the hour did come, that the cup didn't pass from Jesus, but he drank the cup of the wrath of God to the very last drop so that we could be redeemed. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. For the love. It didn't look like love, but for the love. You know what? If you're, if you're here tonight and... You know, Jesus has just been kind of like this club that you've done. This thing that you've done because you grew up in Texas. Church has been this thing that you've attended You've never really tasted and seen the cross. We haven't even gotten to the cross. We've just at the betrayal. Can you imagine? And I invite you. uh, It's late. But you know what? I ask that you would allow the Holy Spirit to wrestle with you. I mean, you've been wrestling for a couple weeks now. 
And you hate the fact that we keep inviting you. You hate the fact that other people that you've grown up with or that you've partied with or that you've whored around with, you hate the fact that they are being changed by the gospel. That, my friend, means that the Holy Spirit is wrestling in the hearts of men. We invite you to pray. We invite you to cry out. We invite you, again, as John opened us up, there is freedom here. And that's more important than whatever you have on your DVR. Or your addiction to Facebook. So John's just going to play for us. He's going to sing over us. And I, I ask that it would be kind of a somber, quiet moment where if you are a believer, if you know that the, that the Spirit of God has set you free and that there's liberty and you're no longer enslaved and in bondage to sin, I ask that you would pray and that the righteous prayer, the fervent prayer of a righteous man would availeth much in the salvation of a few tonight. If you need to talk to somebody, grab somebody. That's why we're here. You don't have to talk to me. There's nothing special about me. Talk to somebody and say, I, I, need, I need you to pray with me. This is not the Jesus that I've known. I invite you to do that. Uh, when John's done, he's just going to close us in prayer. And uh, don't don't do one of these things where you just let it, well, I've got it in my little Tupperware, church is over, and now I'm going to go do whatever. Don't just push it aside and become numb to it one more time. We love you, but more importantly, God loves you.